Before we look at the passage tonight, I wanted to provide us all with, with a helpful metaphor, with, a, with an image that's going to kind of control the night, and that's the concept of a paradigm shift, okay? A paradigm shift is when your understanding as a whole, like the, the all of the way that you think about a particular topic, um, a unified theory is the way science would often put it. Uh, it's when something changes that so drastically it can't be added to the paradigm. It's not the paradigm plus. It breaks and reorients. Whoa, we okay there? It breaks and reorients, reorganizes around a new paradigm. Um, probably the one that you're most familiar with is, uh, in, in recent history anyways, is... Um, Einstein's theory of relativity, okay? Before that, the ruling way of thinking about physics was Newtonian physics, going all the way back to Newton and the apple and gravity and all these things. When Einstein presented and started to prove his theory of relativity, it wasn't something that made sense inside the context of Newtonian physics. However, if you embraced and understood relativity, there was a place for Newtonian physics in it. The idea was not of competing paradigms, but a larger and greater and more cohesive idea that also explained the one. And so from one direction, it seemed unreachable, and from the other direction, it all made sense, okay? That's what a paradigm shift is. What Paul presents tonight is that's exactly what God has done in the gospel, exactly what God has done in revealing himself. And because of that, you can't just start with your Corinthian embracing of wisdom or your Corinthian paradigm and assess the gospel and truth or preachers of the gospel or ministers or the message of the gospel through that lens. What he presents here is something different. It's not something that can be added in and assessed accurately. It's something that you have to take hypothetically, look at differently, and then it changes everything. Um, let me show you what I mean. Let's read through the passage, uh, starting in verse 6, and we'll go through 13. And what I want you to notice here is that this passage breaks pretty easily into two sections. The first is a clarification about the fact that there is wisdom in Paul's message. Contrary to what he's been hammering down in very black and white, wisdom versus foolishness, he makes an aside and goes, there really is wisdom here, it's just different wisdom. And then the second part of the section here, the, the large majority of it, focuses on the Spirit's role in this, the Holy Spirit's role in this. So as we read, keep that in mind. Let's read, um, starting in verse 6, and then we'll pray. Paul speaking says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. We're doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might freely, or it might understand the things freely given to us by God. 
And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let's pray. God, as your word here makes the Spirit's role primary, the Holy Spirit's role in us hearing from you central, um, I pray that we would understand and heed this, uh, and that it would shape the way we look for God, and it'd shape the way we listen to God, and it'd shape uh, the way that we know and understand you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Notice again how he begins in verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Okay? As I mentioned earlier, he is making a clarification here. He's been drawing the lines very rigidly between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God. And that's not because he thinks that there's nothing, um, nothing deep or complex about the gospel, uh, about the message he presents, or, or clearly he doesn't think that God is actually foolish. What he's recognizing is that the two concepts of how the Corinthians views, viewed wisdom uh, and how they assessed what was true and embraced philosophy and these types of things, it didn't really translate very well in assessing what God had done. There's a massive contrast between the two. But he doesn't want us to get the understanding then um, that the gospel is, is tremendously simple and kind of mono-application. It only focuses on one thing. It only serves one little purpose. It doesn't talk about all these things. There's no depth to it. It's relatively shallow, even if it's valuable. He, he doesn't want us to come to that conclusion, and he says, no, there is a depth for the mature. We do impart wisdom, he says, for the mature. Now, let me add a clarification to Paul's clarification here. It's one that if you read um, chapter 1 and chapter 2 so far would become relatively clear. But what he's saying here is not, so what we did is we came to you and we told you the simple things about Jesus and him crucified. We didn't tell you the deeper things because you weren't ready to hear them, as if we graduate beyond the gospel. No, he's pretty clear in this passage that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the sum total. And so the issue is not, is there more than that in terms of other topics? It's, is there depth in that in terms of more to explore? And he answers extensively, yes. This is the reason, just, just by way of illustration, this is the reason that Paul can say, this is, this is the good news, that Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief, right? As long as you unpack just a few, ter few terms there, anybody can understand the gospel message. But we also have the entire revelation of Scripture. We have all of the Bible that is, is clearly much more than just a sentence explanation, right? It lays the context of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and it gives the background in the history of Israel, and it presents um, other ideas in, in contrast and standing contrary to the gospel, and it moves all towards and focused on and centered on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it's not just all building up to Jesus, and it's like, well, those were the building blocks, those were the simple things, and now we have the reality, and then it stops. But as we move into the New Testament, we see that, that basically when the Bible says that Jesus is Lord of all, that means every concept is a subcategory of the gospel. It means everything that you think about in your life, all wisdom, in fact, Paul says in chapter 1, is contained in Jesus Christ. 
okay? So he's not saying we only gave you Jesus when we had more to, more to offer. He's saying you've only gotten started in understanding Jesus. He says there's true depth and wisdom there, okay? And he contrasts it here, and he says it is wisdom, it is deep, but it's not like the wisdom he says here in verse 6, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Okay, so he brings us full circle here. He starts by saying wisdom and foolishness, and he says there really is wisdom here, but it's incompatible. This brings us back to that idea of the paradigm shift that I'm talking about here. He's saying you can't just walk through the philosophy of life available to the Corinthian church, who, uh, who the rulers of this age are, or, or even this age as a concept. You can't start from that place and get to the gospel. That's what he's saying here. It can't be inferred. You can't um, you know, extensively study anthropology and biology and by turning over enough spades and doing enough equations, come to the conclusion of the wisdom that Paul is talking about here. He says it's not part of the wisdom of this age. Now, in contrast with this age, the phrase he uses here is the age to come. Okay? And this was a classic Jewish way of thinking about history, but Paul modifies it a little bit. And what's interesting is, notice what he says as he finishes the sentence in verse 6. He says, the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Okay? And so he's not making a contrast here. I, I know there's a lot of moving pieces, but just... Once it's on the table, it'll make sense. He's not making a contrast here between, hey, I'm going to do it right this time, between this age and the age to come, as in this is where life is now, and then someday it will be different, right? Like they were just waiting for the age of Aquarius, something like that. Um, instead, what he's saying is what happened in Jesus Christ, what happened in God's action in history, what's happened in the proclamation of the gospel is both the judgment and therefore the passing away of this age and the beginning overlapping of a new age. Okay, and so he sees, if you will, the coming of Jesus as being apocalyptic, as being the end of everything we know. Okay, Jesus' message of who he is and how life's meant to be lived and the impact the gospel has is inherently subversive. Okay, it stands contrary to the ways of what he calls here the rulers of this age. And so this is that paradigm shift I'm talking about. But a primary difference in these two things, in these two ways of thinking, the thinking of this age, which we can just call humanity as it stands, okay, and, and the wisdom that Paul presents has to do with direction, okay? The wisdom of this age that's being talked about, the wisdom that was compelling in Corinth, the uh, philosophies of men that the Bible is trying to draw a contrast here with, all of them have to do with the fact that we as human beings are looking around from our perspective and assessing and analyzing the facts. Okay, And so wisdom then is doing a good job of putting together reality as we encounter it. The problem he points out here is that the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. In other words, as smart as we may think, everything's ending, okay? You, for a starter, right? The, this idea that comes up in the newspapers about once every five years that we're closer than ever to defeating death, you know, is just that. It's just a news headline. 
The reality is we have thousands of years of human history that speak contrary to that reality. And what we discover if we live long enough, with our eyes open long enough, is philosophies themselves pass away, right? Uh, take, take answers to the questions, what is a healthy life? Just, just as, a, as a basic, right? Every time we think we've got it down and it's no meat and only meat and no carbs and it's like, well, what about the billions of people who that's all they eat in their primary diet, right? Every time we think we get this down, there's a new thing that takes its place. And philosophy in general is that way. If you've studied the history of philosophy, usually a philosopher has a student and that student makes his career out of what? Contradicting his teacher, right? And so philosophy has this tendency to swing back and forth. And the reality is after, even from uh, the time in Corinth, Corinth, from the first century, we're 2,000 years now into Western philosophy. And is there any agreeance? Have we come any closer to understanding the universe in a way that everybody goes, oh, of course, I guess we can stop philosophizing now, right? He recognizes that this thing is the case. In fact, let me, let me add uh, another piece to this, okay? Here's where the flaw is, and I hope this doesn't mess you up because I'm going to talk about relativity again, but in no way related to how we just did. Uh, but it, it is a good illustration. So in Einstein's general theory of relativity, not a special one that none of us understand, the general one that all of you could read and probably get, he gives an illustration of what he's trying to explain in this way. He says, imagine that you're riding a train through a train station, and while it's pulling through the station, still moving, you lean out the window and you drop a rock. From your perspective, that rock is going to fall exactly straight down to the ground. Now, if there's someone standing at the station and they're also watching you drop that rock, they're going to see the rock fall in a parabola, right? A slightly curved, but still towards the earth descent, okay? Uh, now, he points out that there's a sense where both of those perspectives are accurate, but neither of them are complete, okay? Why? Because the train's in motion. And so you get the sensation, if you're the perspective of the person on the train, that, that the train is not in motion because you're moving with it, okay? Now, that may seem maybe obvious, and it may seem unhelpful, but recognize the fact that you are on a giant, incredibly fast-moving train called the planet Earth, right? So when Newton observed that apple fall to Earth and recognized gravity and could chart, for example, terminal velocity of, of an object of a particular mass, he's ignoring the fact that that entire apple-Earth reality is also in motion, right? That's what relativity recognizes, that if you move out the perspective and use a different stable line for measurement, you're going to get a completely different perspective. And so very rarely when you're driving in your car and somebody asks, how fast are you going, do you add the speed that the earth is going with you, right? Okay, this is relativity, okay? It also points out one of the incredible flaws of this wisdom approach that we get sold on. Basically, the Bible here presents two possible ways of life. Life can be known completely, utterly, and fully through our discovery, or knowing life as we should involves some sort of divine interference, those are the options on the table, okay? And what he points out here when he says it's doomed to pass away, he's pointing out the fact that all of us know how limited our own perspective is. The reality is for all of the educated guesses you make and all of the experience behind you, you still get it wrong all the time. 
right? How many times have you thought you knew exactly how to disarm a situation and all you did was pull the pin out of the grenade and it just blew up in your lap? Um, We do not, as human beings, always know even what our own actions will bring about in terms of consequences. If you've seen the Kung Fu Panda movies, you know what I'm talking about. There are other examples of this, but this is the most tangible to a man who has five children, okay? Um, there, There is a part where... There's this horrible villain who's been locked away, and for some reason, probably because of prophecies, it's usually that, uh, this duck gets super worried, worried that he's going to get out. And so he goes to check, and in the process of going to check, he loses a feather, which the criminal then uses as a lockpick to get out of the prison, right? And so he becomes the thing that accomplishes what he's trying to avoid. All I'm trying to point out to you is that that's not just a plot that somebody thought up from their imagination. It's true to life, and you'll find it in other films. It's something that we've all experienced in life. Here's what I'm trying to say. Just pit yourself now up against yourself a year ago. That's a difference in perspective, right? If they were wrong, what makes you right now? Is it a year's worth of experience? Well, see see what I'm saying here is, The limitation to us as human beings is we have an entire known universe, and even if you just look at science and philosophy itself, as our ability to change our perspective grows, like we can see the planet Earth from space, for example, or we get a telescope and so we can see things, or we start to observe that, oh wow, we thought we were the center, but it's actually the sun that's the center. Wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. It's all limited by our incredibly finite, incredibly limited personal perspective, okay? That's a serious flaw in the way that many of us think about how to determine not just what life is, but let's push it even further. How about who God is, okay? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying you are not going to be able to find God through wisdom. You're not going to be able to discern who God is through discovery. You can't just search and find God, but isn't that the normal way we talk about a religious pursuit? I'm seeking, right? I'm, I'm looking for meaning. I'm trying to discover the meaning of the universe. But the problem, the, well, the problem comes down to this. Look at the contrast he makes in verse 7. So it's, it's not a part of the wisdom that's passing away with the rulers of this age, but instead, verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Okay? Now, when you hear the word secret, most likely you think about it wrongly. Because when we hear secret, we think something that can't be known. But in actuality, a secret is both something that's hidden and revealed at the same time, right? Here's why I say this, because if you haven't told anyone, it's not really a secret yet. A secret in the word implies telling. It just also implies that it won't be known without the telling, right? And so if you're that third wheel friend who sees this action going on with your other friend, it's hidden to you, but not to the friend whose ear has the hand up to it, right? It's implied in the word secret. And so when he says here that we have a secret and hidden, uh, hidden wisdom of God here, the thing that he's impressing upon us is that it is something that God has revealed. Okay, That's the difference. Discovery versus revelation. Now this is why this is important. Imagine that I sent you into a room with a total stranger, just sitting there in a chair, and I asked you to get to know them. Now, you can use all of your senses and all of your imagination, and you can learn some things. 
not only can you learn some things about the person sitting there, their color of hair, you know, their choices in style, you might even be able to tell, um, you know, if you've got like Sherlock Holmes deduction style, where they've been and what they've been up to. If you've got a good grasp on genetics, you might be able to tell that, oh wow, both of their ears must have had connected earlobes because they have connected earlobes. There are lots of things you can know about the person, but can you know the person just through your observation? No, unless you're going to have a conversation with them, unless they're going to answer your questions, there's a part of them, and we'd all agree the most important part that can't be known, okay? This is what he means here by secret. He means directly from the mouth of God, not discoverable any other way. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's yet to be that we could just put God on the dissecting table. But even if you could, would you really come out knowing God? In fact, we'll come back to this, but even, even if you could do that with this person in the room, what if you were allowed to take out your scalpels and your tools? What if you were allowed to actually open up their brains and look at the brain tissue? Would you know them then? It, it doesn't get you any farther, okay? This is the contrast that Paul's laying out here, and so he says, what we're trying to tell you doesn't come from discovery, doesn't come from investigation, it doesn't even fit in the paradigm of what we know about the world, okay? Let me just make that um, stranger in the room contrast a bit bigger. You can actually know a lot about people in a room because they're people, right, like you. That actually gives you a lot of room to take educated guesses that they like things like you like things, or that those you know, two orbs in their face that are looking at you are probably eyes. In fact, we'll come back to this in a while, but like understands like. This was a Greek principle of philosophy that, that predates this letter by a few hundred years. What I'm trying to say is, we call a dog's legs legs because we know what legs are, right? And usually, even if something is tremendously different, we describe it in the ways that we have in common with it. Why? Relativity, perspective, because this is your only point of knowledge that you can compare with, okay? So the distance between you and a human being, even a foreign human being, even a stranger human being, is obviously not the same thing as the distance between us and God. And so it just exacerbates the issue even more. But he makes this contrast. He says that it's secret and hidden wisdom of God. Notice next he says, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, so for one, he says it's a good secret. It's in our best interest to know it. It's on our behalf. And then he says it's something that God decreed before the ages. Okay. And so he says this is not a new epiphany that God wants to share with us. This isn't something brand new that God just thought of that he wants to tell you. This is part of the plan. And even, this is important, even the revealing of it, right? It was hidden. It was secret. It's now being imparted. It's now being revealed. It's now being told. Even that is part of the plan. Okay. Now, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this, because he makes another contrast, doesn't he? He says, hey, if the rulers of the world had understood the secret, then they wouldn't have killed Jesus. This is not just simply a, do you really want to think like the enemies of Jesus? That's not really what's going on here. Right? This is not some sort of guilty by association, like, don't be like them. They hated Jesus. That's not it at all. Okay, remember I said that what God does in Jesus Christ is apocalyptic. 
And he's already mentioned the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. You know why they're doomed to pass away? Because of this. Because they crucified the Lord of glory. And not, not just as a consequence for their sin. Um, but here's the thing. That foreordained plan God had, it involved Jesus becoming a man, living a life amongst the Jews, uh, unjustly being accused and unjustly being sentenced and being betrayed by his friends and hand handed over. And even when it gets to Pilate, right, what does he find? Injustice. I see no fault in this man, but you can kill him anyways. That's what Pilate says. But what he points out here is if the rulers of this world, if, if, if the rulers of this age had known what was happening, would they have really done it? If the end of uh, you know, them being the top of the food chain, if, if the reality of them being, you know, the ultimate perspective of power. In fact, it may be he's saying something deeper here. One of the real challenges of the way Paul talks about government in the New Testament is that he closely ties it vocabulary-wise to the spiritual realm. And so when it says the rulers of this age, it uses the same word when it says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of darkness, okay? So it may even be here that he's not just talking about Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, but he's actually talking about the devil and demons. And actually the principle applies either way, right? Satan sees the death of Jesus as a victory when it's actually the final nail in his coffin, it's the destruction of everything he's doing, you know. It's the end of death itself, the only weapon in the devil's toolkit. Listen, many of you have observed how this plays out if you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've read it, right? You've got this evil witch, Jadith, who's taken an, uh, an undeserved rule of the land of Narnia, and Aslan is the only threat to her. But then something happens, right? Edmund, Edmund breaks the, the law of Narnia. He, he does something horrible, and Aslan offers to take his punishment upon himself and die in his place. And Jadith is so excited, right? She doesn't go through it with just, you know, the, um, the blind wrap of justice around her eyes. She doesn't go through it in some sort of rote. She has a full-on creepy party, and there's mocking and excitement and rejoicing when in actuality... That's the end of Jadis' rule, right? Because Aslan doesn't die there. He comes back to life. Um, and, and because of that, winter is over, right? Because of that, spring has come. Because of that, Aslan returns to his rightful place. And this is how Aslan explains it. He says, yes, there was magic that required death. But there was a deeper magic that Jadith knew nothing about. What C.S. Lewis is trying to point to is what Paul is talking about here, which is which is that the devil doesn't understand the secret, okay? That he, if, if he had realized what he was doing in possessing Judas, in bringing about injustice, in, a, in even attacking the Messiah himself, um, it's his death warrant that he signed in the blood of Jesus Christ, okay? This is kind of what he's pointing to. Now, why does he bring it up here? Like I said, it's not, don't be that guy. It's as an illustration, Okay, because the reality is, that's probably the clearest inst instance of history, but that's true of all life. Remember, he says here that this plan was foreordained from the beginning, and it's being carried out, and every part saw themselves as fully 
in power, fully in control, the ones at the top of the food chain making the decisions, and they went, we will put to death Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, when Peter preaches to these same people, he says, yes, you crucified Jesus according to the foreordained will of God. Okay? And the reason why this illustration is here and the reason why it's important is it's one more evidence, one more place that you don't see the big picture. That if you rely solely and completely on your perspective in this age, your perspective in your decisions right now, you already have countless pieces of evidence against your reliability in prediction, against your reliability to control your circumstances. This is what he's trying to say. Wisdom won't cut it. If you really want to know the truth, if you really want to know the world, if you really want to know who God is, do you really think you have what it takes to do that accurately and fully and completely? And he says, no. Even the most important part of God's plan, even the centerpiece of God's plan, even the one that is prophesied in the Old Testament, Right? Do you remember when Jesus has raised from the dead and he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? What's their problem? They've just had this weekend go down. Jesus has been crucified and now people are saying he's alive. And they say, you know, there was this man and we really thought he was the one. We thought he was the promised one, the one the scriptures speak of. We thought he was the Messiah and then he was killed. And now some people are saying he's alive and we don't know what to do with any of this. And Jesus says, are you so foolish that you don't understand what the prophets have written? And he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. One of the fascinating things about the crucifixion of Jesus is when you read Psalm 22, which was written 700 years before Jesus came, it reads just like his death. When you read Isaiah, which was written um, you know, 500 years before he came, in Isaiah 53, it's incredible how closely related it is, and all of that existed prior to Jesus' coming, but they couldn't see it. Why? Because they hadn't been told. The secret hadn't been revealed. Even with all the facts on the table, they looked at Jesus and went, I don't understand what's going on here. Even the disciples, who Jesus gave the added benefit of going, let me explain it to you moment by moment. Here's how it's going to go down. We're still left scratching their heads, and even the few women who showed up at the tomb on Sunday weren't there in anticipation, but in despair and respect, okay? And so he points to this as being an illustration of the great failure of our ability to find God, a great failure of our ability to really know the meaning of life. Many quotes in the scriptures, he says, verse nine, but as it was written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, he says in verse 10, God revealed to us. Okay, so first the passage. It seems like he's probably paraphrasing out of Isaiah 64 here. Um, the first two lines in this are relatively close. The rest is not. It may even be that at this time, Isaiah's passage had already been culturally uh, nuanced and adapted and that he's quoting a paraphrase of Isaiah that everybody knows and we don't. Um, but it's most likely Isaiah. And what's happening in Isaiah 64 is basically uh, God is predicting through Isaiah the impossible. He says, look, I know your circumstances right now, Israel, but here's what's going to happen. 
And then we have this passage, and he basically says, no God has ever been seen like this. Only you are the God who's been seen. But how has God been seen? In the miraculous happening. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you want to know how you recognize God working? Because it doesn't fit in the confines of anything else, right? That's why we call it a miracle. God shows himself in doing the impossible, the unexpected, right? I know that no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, but with God in the Old Testament, all the more so. Unless he goes to his people and says, here's what I'm going to do. Nobody goes, you know what I bet God's going to do and acts on that. It's just not a thing. And so here he says, look, this is exactly part of the way God reveals himself. This is what God says about himself, that the things that nobody has seen or heard from themselves or even imagined, those are the things that God has prepared. Those are the things that God are doing. Even there, he says, we're locked out, but... As often as you may have heard this verse read at funerals as being a picture of heaven. And that, by the way, is not an inappropriate application of the text, is it, right? In the things that God has prepared for those who love him that we can't even imagine, heaven clearly fits the bill. But notice what Paul says here in verse 10. He says, these things that nobody's found from the outside, nobody's dug up with a spade, nobody's, you know, figured out and proved the theorem, these things... God has revealed, verse 10, to us through his spirit, okay? Do you hear the contrast there? Discovery, revelation. You looking, God displaying, God showing. And he doesn't say that God will do these things and then you'll recognize them. He says that God has revealed them now, that he's proclaimed them, that he's made them known, and he says he's done this through the spirit. Now, this is a little bit off topic, but it's really helpful for the passage, so I want to mention it to you. If you start in the beginning of chapter 2 and you read as far as we have through verse 13, just these 13 verses, you will see the shape of what God has done is Trinitarian, meaning that it focuses in on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, okay? And so he began by saying that all I have to talk to you about is Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus And then he says, but this was God, the Father's foreordained plan, and now he says it's being revealed through the Spirit. The reason why I'm pointing this out to you is because it's constant in the New Testament. If you want another example of this, when when we are asked the question, what has God done? Read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, starts by saying, the Father has elected and ordained and adopted, the Son has redeemed with his own blood, and the Spirit has now sealed. You'll see this relationship. He sees salvation as being the whole Godhead working together towards one end, okay? But here, he focuses in on the role of the Spirit, and the first thing he says here is that the Spirit has revealed, okay? That he is the bearer of the secret, and he is making it known, okay? Now, here's a very important Notice what it says in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And if you pay attention as we read through in verse 13, look at verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. In verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by God. That's a change in pronouns. If you go back and you start reading in 1 Corinthians 1, all the way through this argument, it's been I, Paul, and you, Corinthians. And suddenly there's a we. Now, it may be that the we in this section is referring to Christians in general. And in a limited sense, that's definitely the case. God has revealed himself to us Christians 
through his spirit. God has given us not the spirit of the world, but, the sp- but his spirit. But it is interesting that just after this, as he finishes this whole we section, notice what he says in chapter 3, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. And so it seems here that the we he's talking about does not include the Corinthian church. I would argue that the most likely candidates for the we in this passage are the apostles themselves. Okay? That's the we. And if you read the whole from 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, you'll see that that's basically what he's talking about, is how do you understand the apostles who came to you and taught? How do you understand the message you've been given? And so he focuses in on the apostles, and here's why this is important. Because as he does so, he tells us something about the scriptures and about how we know God. Like I said, I think you can take most of the things that are said in verses 10 through 13 and apply them generally to Christians in a limited sense. But his purpose here, I think, is to talk about his message, the apostolic message, the gospel that they preach that they have been commanded by Jesus to carry, the one that we have codified for us in the New Testament, okay? So with that in mind, notice once again what he says. First off, he says, the Spirit has revealed to us these things, the things that couldn't be discoverable, the things that were unknowable, the things that God has prepared, he's told us. And then notice in verse, um, verse 10, halfway through, he says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Okay, so why is the Spirit a better candidate to know? Because he searches everything. You know, it's part of his omnipresence that he can go where you can't go you know we may boldly go where no man has gone before but the spirit's already been there and he says that's true even of the depths of God and it's inappropriate for us to think of the spirit rummaging around in God you know that's what the illustration kind of points to but his point is driven home by the next illustration notice what he says for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him Okay, here's, here's how it works out in that room scenario I mentioned earlier. The you that you can't know of that stranger, what brings that about, okay? Their body may be doing the talking, but it's their mind that's thinking, right? Their body may express and act on their desires, but it's the heart that desires it. The spirit of the person is, is the, the you, right? That you are an embodied you, yes, but the spirit And he says, the only one who can know a person is the spirit of the person. The obvious point he's making here is the spirit of God then knows God's thoughts because he thinks them, okay? Because he's God himself. Now, clearly there's a breakdown in comparison here. But that's why he uses these two illustrations together. The point is, God is so committed to making these truths known to revealing who he is, that the Spirit is doing it. And the way he says he's doing it is first that he's revealed it to the apostles, and then verse um, verse 12, uh, well, actually, this is good in 11. He says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So not only does he search out the thoughts of God, but he comprehends them. He doesn't just hear them, but he understands them. And then in verse 12, now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. I don't think he's making a contrast here between adversarial spirits. So in one corner, you've got the spirit of the world weighing in it, blah, 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 right? And then over here, you've got the spirit of God. The idea is instead, this isn't a worldly spirit. This isn't something that comes from 
the world, comes from the wisdom of this age, but once again, he's emphasizing it's God himself's spirit, okay? He says he's given it, why? That we may understand the things freely given to us by God. Do you see how the connection has been made there? The spirit understands, and we've been given the spirit so we can understand, okay? And then notice verse 12. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Okay, this is the one that I think is most clearly pointing to the apostles. Because what is he saying here? He's saying, the words that I brought you the gospel in, the words that are leaving my pen as I write this, these are not just my words, they are taught by the Spirit. Okay, here's what I'm getting at. If you reduce the Bible down just to man's record of God's word, you don't see what Paul is saying here. In fact, if you reduce it down to just uh, man's record of God's actions, like God did stuff and people just wrote it down, you don't understand what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that God wants to be known so much, not only does he speak but he gave the spirit so that spirit can give understanding to the apostles and then those apostles spoke using the words of the spirit. What I'm saying here is that God's revelation is personally curated to make sure we understand. That's what this is saying, okay? But I want you to notice the difference again in direction. The idea here is not we going out there and finding God. We figuring out who God is, but God coming into men and speaking through those men. And as we'll see next week, even in us, we receive those words through the Spirit. He says this at the end of 12, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are what? Spiritual, right? And so the source is God, the messenger is God, and the recipient in one sense is God. It covers all the bases. Here's why this is important. Say Jesus really was who he said he was. Can we really be confident the apostles got it right? They really understood what Jesus was trying to say? Can we be confident that the things they wrote about Jesus looking back in the Gospels and the things that they thought about what had happened in Jesus were accurate? Is it just God did something miraculous in becoming man and dying and we're left to go, I wonder what that meant? No, Paul says here that the Spirit was given so that they may comprehend those things. The Spirit was given so that they may articulate those things. Listen, here's what I'm saying here. The Bible is not just a record of God's redemptive acts. It is one of them. It's one of them. Okay? God's plan involved revealing that plan through the Bible. It's not just a picture or a history or a testament or a record. It is revelation. That's what Paul says here. Now, why is he driving this home? Because the uh, Corinthian church on the outside had been using not only the world's perspective to judge the truths of the gospel, but they'd been comparing and compassing, uh, you know, comparing and contrasting recipients, uh, sorry, uh, apostles. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Right? And he says, no, you don't seem to understand where the active ingredient of your salvation is. You don't even seem to understand why God is knowable. It's not because Apollos is eloquent or because Peter, you know, was there at the transfiguration. It's because God is actively working in us. It's because God desires so much to communicate that he's given us himself. 
I was reading a book last week about marriage, and the author made a, a point that I just never thought of. He was talking about unity in marriage, and he said, for Christians who have both received the Spirit of God, there's tremendous room for unity because they both have the Spirit of God, right? It's a weird thing to say, but you have a person in common. That's, that's what he's trying to say. And what it's talking about here, I'm just reducing it down to communication. How can you know that you're interpreting what your friend is saying accurately? Here, God's taking care of that because he's working not just in the work of salvation, but in the proclamation of that salvation. And like I said, we'll hear in the next week, in the hearing of it. Okay? This is a big deal. For one, Christian or non, wherever you're at this morning, it's a completely different question to ask, how can I find God? And God, please come and find me. Do you hear the difference in direction? Okay. That's kind of, I think, what this passage points to very well. Um, look, this is, this, is how, this is how I'll explain it. It's not inappropriate to talk about our search for God or our search for knowledge or our search for truth, but it's Newtonian physics in an Einstein relativity world. Okay. That's true as much as it applies to your perspective, but that's only part of the truth. And the Bible says over and over again, as much as you may feel you're on a journey looking for God, the reality of the truth is that we're running from him, that we're lost from him. It's not God who's lost, but us, and that he in Jesus Christ has come to find us. And even in the proclamation of the gospel itself is on that process of seeking us out, of calling to us, of inviting us in. Here's how this impacts a couple of things, okay? Here's how it impacts the Bible. Clearly here, you cannot go to the Bible and seek to know God self-independently. Um, one of the implications of this passage is if, if you want to know God and you forget about the Spirit's process in it, if you're not open to the fact that God is speaking, if this is just a book to be read and not a message to be heard, okay, it doesn't matter if you have all of the grammatical tools and you greatly understand the languages and you've got all of the commentaries, there's a portion of this that is inherently spiritual. Nine times, as he talks about this one idea, nine times in four verses does he use the word spirit. Okay, the Spirit is all over this. The Spirit who knows God and understands God and who imparts and reveals and who then gives them the words to articulate everywhere there and then also the Spirit on the receiving end. Okay, it's there across the whole thing. And so when we come to the Bible, it's not the same thing to say, let me see what this says about God as it is to say, God, show me yourself. One of those embraces the wisdom of this age that says, I am the judge, the jury of what is true. I just need to investigate. Okay. See, here's the thing. Not only are you limited by your perspective, but you're biased in it. That's the problem. It's not just that your perspective doesn't take in all the information. It's that you want things to go a very particular way. I think all of us have read enough of the Bible to go that's uh, read enough of the Bible to know that some of it makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to change. 
because we'd rather go on living the way we're living. And if this book is true, then some things have to give. Some things have to change. Now, what I'm saying here is that you're not objective. And you treat yourself like you are. Imagine, imagine that you're a judge and a case comes before you that involves a business that you've personally invested lots of money in. Okay? What's the right thing to do? To remove yourself from the case. Why? Because you're too invested in the outcome to justly and objectively oversee that. What I'm saying to you is that you don't have the option with the questions that the Bible answers. Because all of them greatly and deeply personally impact you. They answer questions like, who determines the will in my life? Who makes the decisions in my life? Is it me or is it God? Who decides what is right and what is wrong and what is best for me? Who is the one who is in control of my life? All of these questions come to the table and the Bible says that we're not just lost, we're rebellious, okay? That we are anti-God. And all of us, I think, at one point or another, recognize this. All of us, at one point or another, are aware of the fact that we're not really sure we want a God. We want a God when he does my things, and when he's good to me, but if he gets to decide, I'm not sure I'm really interested in that. I'm quite happy being the master of my own domain. But for all of the challenge there is in, in that reality, there's also a tremendous hope. Because take the two possibilities of the universe, discovery and revelation, and answer this question. Can God be known? In one Usually there's an arrogant yes, but in actuality, if you really look at things, it starts to get pretty desperate, right? In all the facts of history, in all the space of the universe, in all of your limited perspective, in all of your terribly temporary time, and that's not to mention your biases and all these things, can you really know for sure? I remember when The Matrix finished its trilogy, there was a theory popping around the forums that The Matrix was within a matrix, Okay. That, that Neo, when he thought he was awake in the real world, was just in another computer program. Do you know where that comes from? It goes all the way back to Plato. Plato talked about enlightenment as being chained in a cave and watching shadows, and then you're set free, and you step up into the sunlight, and you see the real world. But then very soon, philosophers started to go, but what if, what if that real world is just another cave? Okay? How can you know you're really out? That's the limitation of human perspective. But the Bible says not only can God be known, but he is making himself known. Not only can you hear God, but he is speaking. Maybe you can't find and look for God, but he is revealing himself. Okay? And so this passage answers very clearly, can you know God? And the answer is a tremendously exciting yes, because God wants to be made known. Because God is revealing himself in Jesus Christ. And the problem that he's presenting in this passage is that we have such a tendency to filter all of that revelation, all of that information, even filter the way we talk about our journey through this limited perspective. We're Newton getting hit on, hit on the head on the apple and we're not even thinking about earth flying through space. Okay, and so what I'm saying here is tonight, even if you're not a Christian, there's a part of this where you have to embrace the hypothesis if you want to know if it's true. You can't judge it by the things you know. That's just science 101. You can never test in a hypothesis believing it's false. It doesn't work. 
You have to go, if my hypothesis is true, how would it act? And then you do an experiment to test it. Okay, this is what this looks like in our lives. This is what it looks like in the experiment of Christianity. It means that you don't just read about prayer, you have to pray. Instead of just saying, let me see if there's a God, you have to say, God, if you're out there, show me, right? This is the difference that I'm talking about. You also have to uh, be humble enough to go, is it possible that I'm not capable of finding God on my own? Is it possible that I actually don't want to know who God is? Is it possible that the most true pursuit of God is to say, God, please come and find me? Okay? And then even for us as Christians, this means that every time we open the Bible, every time we gather to listen to preaching, are we recognizing the tremendous miracle of what's happening? Not just that God has spoken and it was written down, but that God has written a book. And not just that, as we saw last week and as you see in other places in scriptures, but with this book, God still speaks. This is a game changer. It's a paradigm shift. All of those other things are true, but they're not the whole truth. And the glory of what's going on here is that God has, like I said, curated the process because he wants to be known. Can you know God? Can you really hear him speaking in the scriptures? Can you really grow deeper in your wisdom and knowledge of God? The answer is yes, not because you're well-educated, not because you're diligent, not because you're skillful. We'll see next week there are things that can hinder this, but no matter what, whatever we talk about removing hindrances, that's all good. The active ingredient of God's revelation is the revealing God. Let's pray. Father, in the hypothesis of Christianity, we have to start from the place that in our flesh dwells no good thing. We have to question if we're good enough to even be the judge. And although the Bible is full of evidence and eyewitness testimony, there is this rebellion. There is this blindness. There is this resistance. As Paul puts it in Romans, we so often suppress even the truth we know. We suppress it in unrighteousness. We shove it down into the chest of our hearts and we sit on it so it can't get out, so it can't enter into, enter into life. I thank you that you didn't just go, well, if you don't want to know, that's fine, and walk away. But instead, you said, no, I have a plan. I have a plan. And not only am I going to carry out that plan, and not only am I going to do it in public, and not only is it going to be big and tremendous and life-changing, but I'm also going to carry that plan. I'm going to proclaim that plan. I'm going to do all the things necessary so that I can be known. So much so, Father, that you gave us your spirit that you sent a part of yourself, uh, the person of the Spirit, to dwell in us. As Paul says later in the book, we are now the temples of the living God. And so you're not just far from us, but clear. You're within us and working. I pray, Lord, that we would abandon all the hope, abandon all hope of self-discovery or or journey, or, or, or process, or, or, or finding and seeking the truth, but instead, Lord, we would be the found ones, that we would cry for help, 
We thank you, Lord, that you've foreseen every resistance and you've turned it in your hand to good. We thank you that you've foreseen not just every resistance and circumstances, but every barrier in us knowing you, every place that we could fall short and you've gone the distance. And I thank you, Father, tonight for the hope that even if this gap between us, even if it's so tremendously large, it may be a big gap for us, but it's not a big gap for you. So I pray, Lord, that we would hear and listen and cry out and pray in hope knowing these things, knowing that the Spirit has come to dwell in us so that we might know God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.